0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Daniel Perris, a host of the New Books Network. I'm delighted to have as my guest today James Pierce, author of The Use of History in Putin's Russia, a book that just came out with Vernon Press. James, thank you so much for being a guest on the show.
1: Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm thinking about how I present this, and as a historian myself... Of the former soviet union i know that history matters but then you think about in russia history really matters it's it's yes. to a degree that is i think uh, unexpected uh for people from other societies that it, it's just intertwined dramatically and extensively with uh, notions of identity and and, and narrative and, and patriotism go, go provide an overview for people who may not be aware of the extent to which history matters in Russia to the official ideology to you know to down to down to high school teachers whom you interview in this very interesting work.
1: Yes. Sure happy to. Well I think uh, most people forget two things about Russia and number 1 is that Russian history did not begin in 1917 of course. It has a much longer history and a much more complicated history than just the 20th century but The other side of that, of course, is in 1991, Russia had to once again uh, re-answer the fundamental who are we question. And for Russia, I mean, they had a long history of where to get that answer from, unlike other former Soviet republics. But no political consensus formed immediately after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And certainly Yeltsin Yeltsin tried to discredit the Soviet legacy Very quickly, the Communist Party were banned, even though most people were perhaps, if we're being honest, not ready for that to happen. And it discredited the new democracy in some ways. And so while you still had leftover nostalgia for the USSR, there was also this rediscovering of imperial Russia. And they had to work very hard on carving out this new identity that was embracing of democracy, even though Russia had never had democracy never knew democracy apart from briefly in 1917. And as uh, Richard Sakwas says, I'm sure you know, Russian history can be interpreted as a long history of failed democratic reforms. Whether you go back to the 1860s or even Catherine the Great and Veliki Novgorod, there's always been an unhappy experience of trying to bring democracy about. But on top of that, you also had to reconcile with the darker episodes. So Stalin's terror, I talk about a lot. So while people acknowledge, obviously, that it was bad and a crime, they're not ready to disavow the whole period itself. So and of course, a lot of people still lived through the period and remember it fondly for different reasons. Stalin led Russia to its greatest military victory, which again, the state has to balance that fact with the terror and appease citizens in itself. And when it comes down to history teachers at the micro level, what you've had over the last sort of 30 years is first you had an explosion of sort of new history textbooks talking about the new history that was once again allowed to be spoken about but this of course uh you know succeeded strict control one ideological interpretation and now what we have under putin is a managed open discussion of the past and with that i would say a preferred narrative emerging one that Effectively, it presents the state in a positive way as the heirs to the great patriotic war and the heirs to some of the more successful czars and so on. And so it's trying to, you know, a a coalition of everything and everyone in that sense.
0: Let me stop and unpack some of that because it's really interesting. when you think of the Czars of Russia from a Western perspective or an outsider perspective, Alexander the Third is not the first name off off of uh, your your lips. But uh, in fact, Alexander the Third may be the the czar that is the easiest from a historical perspective to manage. So the uh, the promotion of Alexander the Third, I thought, was very interesting. Th- this is, I think, uh, emblematic of what you and what the Russian ideological leaders are trying to do is there are so many different competing interests that you're describing here that you want to have an element of patriotism you have to pick the the history has been so uh zig and zagged and uh so challenging that it's not easy to come up with a simple narrative that is a state supporting narrative uh because of that having to choose as you say and, and compromise to some extent with you know this period or that period uh, and hence the opportunity for Alexander III to, uh, to to rise in importance.
1: Yes, and I think I say in at least a couple of chapters in this book, the supposed glory days that are being painted uh, under Putin are those when the state was at its strongest, both domestically and in foreign policy. So, of course, Alexander III, I'm sure you've seen in Moscow outside the history park, you've got, uh, there's a big, billboard or something with him on in his famous quote, Russia's two best allies are the Navy and the Army, or whatever it is, I'm paraphrasing, of course. Uh, and military patriotism has to inform some of this new history. So while it is embracing of the military legacy, both the Red Army and Tsarist officers, and uh, a new trend that's been happening is the sort of re-glorification of Brusilov in the First World War as kind of the last hero of the Empire, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, as you allude to you know school teachers they have this problem of well what do i teach it has to be patriotic but i've got all these new monuments popping up and all these new things uh, and all these new narratives that i've learned over the years and on top of that an exam that i have to explain to the kids and yeah it's not easy it isn't proving to be easy but at the same time the the majority of people i would say are not opposed to a patriotic history what they question so much is the intent that you can never criticize the state, even when they were at fault or were not successful in some respect.
0: And so uh, readers should understand, James's book is innovative in that it involves a lot of interviews with uh, teachers in the uh, greater Moscow area and and provinces as well as Moscow. And so there's a lot of bottoms up perception of the mechanics of teaching history. And I think that that's where... Uh, This work uh, adds uh, a lot of value because it's not just Dmitry Peskov making a statement or uh, a a regime spokesman or a government spokesman uh, articulating a historical position. Let's back up a little bit to Istericheskaya politika. That is that, again, a a society that has an Istericheskaya politika is itself... Um, distinctive and noteworthy, and as you point out that that policy that history policy is can be you know the, the mere existence of a history policy and how it influences textbook writing and presentations and memorials and statements about the past and dealing with controversies, wars and so forth is is distinctive that there is such a thing i mean there are, there are consciousnesses of history and sensibilities of history in the United States or in England. I don't know that there's an Istericheska politica anywhere else, though.
1: Well, I think every country has some sort of, as we're finding out in the UK now, obviously, with uh, Cecil Rhodes and um, the guy in Bristol, I forgot his name, sorry, excuse me. But yes, it's this whole, we have to Mm -hmm. reckon with the dark past thing. But there is no real historical politics as such. Political parties don't run on any kind of historical legacy. And the reason for that is... Well, in my opinion, it's quite straightforward. Uh, Public politics is still very limited in Russia. And because of the recent past, whether it's perestroika or the 90s, or the fact that most, well, uh, a lot of people still remember the Soviet Union. Don't forget a third of Russians are over 50 now. There is more of a willingness to talk about history. So, I mean, Navalny, uh, obviously timely to bring him up, he calls it a distraction from real issues. I don't think that's quite true. What I think it is, is just that in many ways, and a few of my students in Moscow have said this before, the government has to explain the chaos in a way. Uh, how, how is it that Russia, who contributed so much to science and culture, ended up with a leader like Stalin? And then how did we end up with perestroika after all the promises of 1917? And when we thought that they were finally going to come true, did we end up in absolute poverty? And so I think it's part of that, but it is also, and perhaps we'll talk about this going forward, it's starting to wear slightly thin now with the lack of socioeconomic reforms. So it's not just explaining the chaos so much, it's explaining the lack of reforms in what is now a notionally democratic
0: state. I I should mention, uh, James, or you can mention that you are long time resident in Moscow you're currently teaching uh, at the university of liverpool but basically a long time resident so you you are yes. able to observe uh, this istoricheskaya politika both at the government level the kind of cultural institution level and the secondary school and exam teacher uh, level uh, uh, close up and uh, that that comes out through the book that uh, you know how how the institutions of history whether it is local schools or institutions or, and, and academics have to wrestle with a politica or a part of the study yes. uh, and it's, it's evolution and how they deal with the, the various, uh, That's challenges it. and, uh, yes. the, again, the twists and turns of, of Russian history.
1: Yeah. Uh, and this is one of the bigger points as well. I should stress that uh, they're trying to. When I say they, I mean uh, the powers that be. They're trying to make history very linear, one line from Rurik to Putin, an uninterrupted march kind of thing. The trouble, of course, with history is it's not linear. I mean, time is linear, but history is actually very messy. As we've been finding out, both in the US and the UK, you know. Uh, The past is dark and you can't just necessarily explain that away with you know peskov making a statement or dominic cummings making a statement or anybody for that matter there has to be um legitimate answers that don't cause disillusionment with the present and that's another important point i try to highlight russians value the present more than the past because well, well, where do I begin with that? But yes, they value the present more. And so because of that, there is <laughs> there is this desire to... They, they need the past to be good and to look better so they can protect the present situation and so they can manage a polarized population and so on and so forth.
0: Is that? But is that different than in the UK or the US? That is, we have people who, interestingly enough, in the United States, a few years ago, we had the phenomenon of Hamilton, which was a unexpected oh, based on it's what every political science or history american history teacher wish they had been able to come up with because it, <laughs> yeah. it you know, nails the main main issues of constitutional government and in such a compelling way but even with that despite hamilton i think hamilton's more the exception that proves the rule and i'm kind of circling back to this uh, sensibility in Russia, seems to be heightened perhaps more than is other. There are people in the United States who care a great deal about us history, whether it's the Hamilton period, whether it's the civil war period, the notion of quote, what we call the greatest generation end quote, which is the world war II veterans. Sure. England's got a thousand year history, which, uh, is, um, really, really a part of its identity, uh, and certainly helps the tourist trade a lot. And you've got a lot of buildings, uh, that that uh, are are welcoming, and it's that's all fine and good in thousand year old universities, uh, but I, I I I don't know if the arguments about uh, Tudor history, or even the uh, Federalist arguments, uh, the Jeffersonians versus the Hamiltonians, the Federalists in in the early history of the republic are as intense as they are in Russia. It just seems that history matters more in right. Russia. And in your time, have, have I mean, I'm talking back to the initial question, but I think it's why the book and why this topic is so interesting is why is Russia, why is history so important in Russia to the ideology of the government? And maybe that's the answer, that there is a ruling ideology of the government and it wants a neat and tidy package, which includes history, whereas in the West, governments change, and uh, they don't need to present a, a uh, entirely uh, sealed package of linear, as you call it, linear history. But you know, why is it so important that the Russian government have this historical backing and a uh, fully fledged istoricheskaya politika? Sure.
1: Uh, well, there's a number of things I'll try to deal with. But uh, if I start just by comparing it with uh, the situation in the UK. Um, so with Brexit, there is, uh, there's a small his- history element there. And that is that, essentially, we had no mourning process for the end of the empire. It And we were no longer a great power any longer. And there's this whole element of the empire in Brexit and of this sort of country that we lost and that we, you know, some people would like to get back. But then on the flip side of that, with the anti Europe, there's always been an anti European thing in British thought simply because they've spent the last thousand years trying to invade us. Okay, so there is a natural distrust there. With Russia. Uh, And again, so uh, about the ideology element, I can't say there's an ideology as such. I know that people go to great lengths to say this is what Putin wants and this is the Kremlin's idea. I don't think there is an ideology as such because ideology is very fixed. So under the Soviet Union, it was Marxism-Leninism and it was confined to, again, strict ideological lines. And with history, it was very economic in a sense, okay? Because... It's hard enough to write history from a Marxist perspective, uh, particularly Russia's. So that's what they did. Putin has shown himself to be ideologically flexible over the years. He's been pro-Europe. He's been surrounded by hostile others. And every occasion he's done that, he's backed it up by some comparison of history, World War II being his favorite one. Um because it's the one thing that brought the people of the Soviet Union together for the first time and gave them an achievement they could rally behind and so that's why they're desperate to keep the flame going kind of thing. So I think it's just it adds a layer of legitimacy. Uh it it never fails to generate a media attention and uh, perhaps that's slightly cynical of me to say, but every politician needs to throw in something to have their, you know, their moment aired and I think that's just his. And other political figures in Russia do it too, whether it's the communists or whether it's Eurasianists. Uh, The problem that Russian liberals have, and I think this is topical, obviously, with everything going on in Belarus and with Navalny. um, The problem Russian liberals have had at gaining power is they've quite often been unable to place Russian history into a context that benefits them or makes them look you know or to show them in a positive light there were no statesmen that they could rally behind not really uh whereas putin as we talked about he can select any number of figures or any period that can show statism or pragmatism i think if putin does have an ideology it's pragmatism but that's probably for another podcast
0: yeah we're running up against another podcast which is the russia and the west podcast the Martin Malia and many other people over the last hundred years who have, including in Russia, who are arguing one or another Russia is part of the West, not part of the West. Uh, and the and you mentioned the Eurasianists yourself. These are uh, intellectuals in Russia who kind of... Issue, this is not part of your book, and it's a topic for another day. Who who want to be uh, who who want to define a, a new way, not West, non-West, but kind of a uniquely Russian-Eurasian yes. approach. And so, the, there are the underlying issues that make it very hard. Uh, uh, underlying issues of identity that make it very hard when you are looking at Russia's history to to choose. Because again, if you're choosing. If, according to the Western paradigm, certain individuals in Russia are trying to highlight a, a board of efforts at liberalism, then you you have one historical narrative. If you're a Russian and you say, "Listen, not really interested in that Western liberal paradigm." Here are other issues, and if you're a Eurasianist, you say, "I don't care about either of those issues." Here's here's the uniquely Russian experience, and it's neither Western nor non-Western, yes. etc. So um, it's 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 kind of a mess, but it's a really really interesting mess, and I. Almost a little bit schizophrenic in that, from my perspective, that and the teaching, again, and how you highlight uh, the mechanics of teaching at the ministerial level and the textbook level and the memorials and various chapters of your book, as well as the interviews with teachers, the mechanics of teaching, there are a lot of people tripping all over this because it's, it's a largely unresolved issue of, you know, what, what is our narrative? And it's awkward when it keeps changing all the time at least that's been a historical.
1: no i think that's a valid point but i think that's also a historical precedent in russia There has you know going back to the the 19th century and even to the times of peter the great this question is you know is russia european or asian or are we a technocracy or uh, an empire a multinational empire or what is it and that's whole part of the russian idea discussion which is effectively it is informing the rewriting of history under putin and it did under yeltsin as well but to a lesser extent and so i think teachers they have a hard time reconciling that themselves because especially they're living through a very highly politicized period the russians and at a time when there's a growing civil society who are very i mean let's be fair russia does have an open society they're active social media users they do have a free press albeit with uh, problems. Let's just put it like that. So yeah, there is a lot to explain. And then of course you have the obstacle of, well, teenagers are teenagers. How do I get them to care about something that they can't really connect with? Because now what we have in Russia is every school child was born under Putin or after Putin became the president. They have no memories of the Soviet Union or of the Cold War. It's just stories from their grandparents, and so
0: the memory aspect also has to be dealt with in that regard. So you're, you're, uh, you you reference the teenagers, and I think what's interesting in your book is that there's a lot of nuts and bolts of uh, taking a history exam in, uh, in your work and a lot of bottoms-up history. You want to describe... Some of that, your research, interviews with teachers, this is a member European, for U.S. visitors, for, for, for U.S. listeners, this, this is news for uh, those in Europe, it is not, but this is a European system with an end-of-year exam and entrance exams. It's very focused around you know, not uh, weekly projects the way a U.S. high school might be, but uh, right. final year exams and entrance exams. It's, it's, so you have to prepare for the exam, a couple different the exams, but it is still a the exam system. Yes. And that's where these guidelines about history come into play because you really only have one shot at it, the well, exam. That's it. Do you want to highlight that? Yes. Yeah,
1: so um – History is an elective subject after the ninth class. So, uh, in terms of age group, just to not confuse US listeners, that's about fourteen or fifteen. So, the start of high school or towards the end of high school. Um, so, uh, oh, where do you want me to begin? So, yeah, this uh, all Russian kids will study history. entrance
0: exams and final exams. A mess. Yeah, uh, or so- not a mess. Just challenging. It's a lot, a lot, a high stakes. A lot riding on the exam. There's a lot
1: riding on the exams because, of course, they determine what university you go to and if you get a paid place or not. But because it is an elective subject, but uh, it is an important subject. And that's not just me saying that because I'm a historian. If you look at polling from Lavada, most Russian people consider history to be a, a subject that needs more focus at school or as the most important subject, right? So in some respects, it's understandable that the government wants to place so much emphasis on it if people care about it the problem of course is as you say because it's an elective subject you have to reach them before they stop it so the best case scenario is perhaps some leftover patriotism about certain periods and figures and what's interesting if you read as i have school textbooks it's more the things they leave out rather than what they say that's interesting so most of them say little about stalin's personality for instance and it's not on the exam Uh, trotsky is covered very basically uh sometimes it's on the exam but again it's not the central focus whereas in british schools i can't speak for the u.s uh, trotsky is or at least was quite a huge focus of the revolutionary period uh so there's that um but the patriotic programs patriotic education programs i should emphasize these started in uh the mid-2000s just after the color revolutions in ukraine and georgia and also kyrgyzstan as a way of combating what was perceived as western interference in their own backyard so it was Uh, And it impacts mostly history, but history, what's fascinating about this is now history is basically touching every school subject. And I use the example in my book in a maths exam, they're talking about military tanks and, you know, whether rubles are better than the dollar, even though, you know, currency devaluation and all of that stuff. Uh, So yeah, and like you say, they have to reach them in some way. And I think, you know, education, well, everyone goes to school,
0: right? So, well, the book—the book again for those people, for for, teachers in the United States or in England, uh, history teachers, high school history teachers—I think will find the book interesting because it it deals with these nuts and bolts issues of managing. uh, uh, Listen, in the United States, we have a lot of—we're countries very much divided. It's divided on issues that can easily come up in a history class, and everyone kind of has to be very careful about how they present them. It's a you know real hot button issue. Sure. But here you can see it in, in a different society, how those those are, are managed. I, I, I have to mention at this point that uh, as a h- former historian of, of the Soviet Union, I have been officially denounced uh, by uh, Olga Vasilyeva, who is okay. the former minister of education of the Russian Federation, uh, until January of this year, had been in the position for four years, about 20, 25 years ago, she told me. Uh, point blank to my face, I had no business studying Soviet <laughs> yeah. history because I was not uh, well, she's a Russian. She's an interesting figure, actually, because she's a historian. Let's, let's go yeah. there. Yeah, she's
1: a historian of the Stalin era, specifically uh, the Orthodox Church relationship with Stalin. So if that wasn't controversial enough, she was she was chosen on purpose after the annexation of Crimea. And also the former culture minister, uh, Vladimir Medinsky. And I say this very loosely, but he's written history books as well about the Second World War. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I, I don't want to say alternative facts, but there are some questionable statements uh, throughout his works that, uh, well, whatever. <laughs> well,
0: I, so I was uh, touching upon in my research bureaucratic culture in the 20s and 30s involving the anti religious campaigns. It was kind of a neutral choice on my part. It was from the perspective less so of religion uh, than it was from bureaucratic processes of a young state trying to mobilize the population on a social issue, which happened to be religion or atheism and so forth. So I I was less controversial than it might have seemed, But from the outside, I was uh, looking into the Bezbozhiniki and the Russian Orthodox Church, and she took great offense that uh, I would even be in in uh, the former Soviet Union conducting archival research. I had no business being there, and she told me that to my face. So uh, there you <laughs> go. <laughs> so, what, well, she what- didn't reply to me, so that's a
1: lot better than what I got. She said, I'll write back in 30 days, and I never heard from her again. So, yeah.
0: I guess yeah. that was her way
1: of saying the same, maybe. <laughs>
0: yes. So there you go. We're taping this interview in the 21st of August. It, it will have a shelf life of at least a year. But as we're taping this interview, Belarus is going on. Navalny is in a hospital in Omsk, poisoned, and uh, there's plenty of controversy going on. Frankly around the whole world, but but Russia uh, has it, even it's more than its normal share of it right now. Do you have any sense of how the history of the current events are going to be treated and quickly assimilated? They're not going to make their way into the exams, which is kind of the core of your stuff, but it, it, if you had to see how Peskov is going to play this uh, going forward, or um, you know this current period, yeah. any thoughts from a historical perspective of how they're likely to position it?
1: Well, I mean... <laughs> talking about schools and talking about everything we have the belarusian and russian school system is still very much in the soviet model in many respects the the way it's set up and the just bombarding people with facts with belarus i think and i wrote about this in a business news europe just the other day belarus is unlike anything we've seen before it's not like ukraine it's not like armenia it's not like it's not like the protests in moscow or khabarovsk this is an isolated incident and i think you know uh the russian media now is treating this like belarus is you know like it's a domestic event and i think they will continue to do that because if you look at war historically and the way that ukraine is treated it's treated as if it's a domestic issue rather than a foreign policy issue navalny you know it's very hard to say because i mean i think it's important that figures like navalny exist but i also you know uh his movement is not as successful as he th- and his supporters think it is. Uh he's got his base, but that, you know, his leadership style makes it harder for him to build unlike uh Tikhanovskaya in Belarus. His leadership style makes it harder for him to broaden a coalition of anti Putin or anti united Russia voters for instance. He does little more than upload videos whereas Tikhanovskaya tapped into something, didn't she? This anti Lukashenko Uh, because I mean, you look, it's, it's not an anti-Russian movement and there's a good reason why it's not an anti-Russian movement. And I don't think that we're going to see Belarus move into that kind of situation. So, um, yeah, it's,
0: (laughs) well, I can't wait to read that. Interesting times we live in. Yeah. Yeah, And you know, a separate topic also, uh, the history of Belarus as a distinct entity, Uh, Also, uh, and and the notions of of historical identity manufactured history over uh, in the 20th century and earlier, a topic for another day, another book. What are you working on currently, uh, James, Uh, other than, you know, (laughs) we're all working on whatever we need to get done today, but in a broader sense... (laughs) Yeah, in a broader sense, uh, you're you're teaching at the University of Liverpool for now. But what's the next research project, if I may ask?
1: So uh, me and Kian Huang, we actually uh, developed, because we both work on monuments uh, and uh, memorabilia in contemporary Russia. So we just submitted a paper to do with uh, 21st century Stalin and terror monuments. So uh, look out for that. Uh, Original research, we conducted a lot of on-the-ground research for that and did tons of interviews. And we really yeah we really worked hard for that and it was just it was good fun it's a shame that project had to end in certain ways uh, but my next project is going to be a history of the golden ring cities uh oh, Russia's golden nice. ring cities yeah well uh, i came to realize cuz uh, as you mentioned in my book i interview teachers uh, trainee teachers from vladimir so uh, for the readers who don't know vladimir is a few hundred kilometers east of moscow and the golden ring is a collection of ancient cities um in a ring shape, funnily enough, uh, connected to the Orthodox Church and to the birth of Christianity in Russia. But what I've come to realize is that in the English language, there's not much research on these. But the historical significance of the Golden Ring is huge. But if you look at the development of these towns, I mean, they lag behind in development. These are what Natalia Zubarevich calls Russia too. They're provincial towns that are trying to modernize, but their main modernization selling point is the history and this other side of Russia that is pre-revolutionary and pre, -pre pre-revolutionary. Uh,
0: but yeah, I did my, I did my archival research in Gatislava. So I, I I get your point.
1: Yeah. So that's going to be exciting. And, uh, uh, so I've just begun that research and uh, I've spent a lot of time in the golden ring as well, because I used to do summer camps, uh, when I was working just as a teacher in Russia, I used to go and do summer camps in the Vladimir region, and mm-hmm. I have a lot of friends there, and obviously conducted my research there. So it's a kind of natural progression, I think.
0: Well, I, I think there, to use the term you reference, without any sense of denigration, I think there is significant demand for more material on Russia too. To uh, that the uh, that the tourist and intellectual experience of visiting Saint Petersburg and Moscow you know, is so dominant, but it, it really does leave a lot yeah. unsaid. It's, so it, there, it there's definitely room aside, for that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, Russia has a lot of, I mean, despite all of the political situation, it's a, it's the biggest country in the world that is still one of the more misunderstood and it has a lot of wonderful things. So if we can bring that to light and show the world, some of that, perhaps it will help this terrible uh,
0: standoff going on between our two countries. Well, the the book is the use of history in Putin's Russia. James yeah. Pierce, thank you so much for uh, being a guest on the show, and uh, look forward to seeing your future research. I look forward to coming back. Thanks for having me.